Reflecting on the climate crisis and other hyperobjects, Charlie Warzel analyzes how the 21st century is characterized by the repeated confrontation of hugely complex problems without straightforward solutions. From Galaxy Brain, read by Chris Brinkley for Curio. These days, I find increasingly myself caught between the worry that I'm being overly alarmist and the fear that I'm stating the obvious. I felt this most strongly in October 2020. COVID cases were surging. The presidential election was near. The far-right areas of the Internet I kept an eye on were vibrating with a dark potential energy. All summer, I watched anxiously as people posted videos online of furious Americans taking to the streets. I listened in on walkie-talkie apps as so-called militia groups attempted to recruit and deploy members. News reports said sales of guns and ammo were surging. I was seized by a deep, persistent dread that these anecdotal instances of civil conflict were a prelude to something bigger. I interviewed scholars who've studied revolutions and shared my fears. I struggled and ultimately failed to put any of this into words at the time. I didn't know how to convey these anecdotal stories into something that went beyond projecting my anxieties onto the world via the pages of the New York Times. I felt I lacked the language to proportionately describe my concern. I was legitimately worried about large-scale, sustained, violent civil conflict across the United States. But, if I'm being honest, I was afraid I'd come off as the extremely online, overly alarmist guy. And yet, if you did occupy the same spaces as I did in October 2020, the specter of civil conflict would have felt just so incredibly obvious as to almost not be worth mentioning. The world was shut down. Everyone was trapped inside and online, and more and more people were beginning to detach from reality. Everyone was miserable and scared and angry. Just look around. This moment offers a window into the way that traditional conceptions and practices of journalism can break down in extraordinary times. I consider not writing this piece back in October a failure. I wrote plenty of columns around and tangential to this subject, yes. But my job is to look at the world through the lens of information and technology and to describe how those elements shape our culture and our politics. I saw something and I didn't say all of what I thought, in part, because I couldn't figure out how to talk about it proportionately. I was also pretty fucking scared of being wrong, but also of being right. Was I wrong or right? Yes, there has not been a series of extended mass casualty conflicts so far. No Civil War too. But I also urge you to watch the New York Times video reconstructing January 6th in full, and tell me that my sleepless nights in October were a gross overreaction. Even now, I struggle to find the adequate word to describe the moment. It makes sense. Our 21st century existence is characterized by the repeated confrontation with sprawling, complex, even existential problems without straightforward or easily achievable solutions. Theorist Timothy Morton calls the larger issues undergirding these problems hyperobjects, a concept so all-encompassing that it resists specific description. You could make a case that the current state of political polarization and our reality crisis falls into this category. 
Same for democratic backsliding and the concurrent rise of authoritarian regimes. We understand the contours of the problem, can even articulate and tweet frantically about them. Yet we constantly underestimate the likelihood of their consequences. It feels unthinkable that, say, the American political system, as we've known it, will actually crumble. Climate change is a perfect example of a hyperobject. The change in degrees of warming feels so small, and yet the scale of the destruction is so massive that it's difficult to comprehend in full. Cause and effect is simple and clear at the macro level. The planet is warming, and weather gets more unpredictable. But on the micro level of weather patterns and events, and social-political upheaval, individual cause and effect can feel a bit slippery. If you are a news reporter, as opposed to a meteorologist or scientist, the peer-reviewed climate science might feel impenetrable. It's easiest to adopt a cover-your-ass position of, it's probably climate change, but I don't know if this particular weather event is climate change. Hyperobjects scramble all our brains, especially journalists. Journalists don't want to be wrong. They want to react proportionately to current events and to realistically frame future ones. Too often, these desires mean they do not explicitly say what their reporting suggests. They just insinuate it. But insinuation is not always legible. I understand these fears, and I feel them myself, professionally and personally. I think anyone who says they don't feel them is probably lying. In fact, these fears, in the right proportion, make for what we traditionally consider a good journalist. After all, many of the best journalists understand how to balance and factor uncertainty into their work. I don't want journalists to jump to lazy conclusions. I think a deeper embrace of nuance and uncertainty is necessary not just in reporting, but in all elements of mass media. That embrace sounds good in theory, but it's much harder in practice. How do you talk about an impending, probable, but not certain emergency the right way? Can you even do that? Can you get people ready for an uncertain, perhaps unspeakably grim future? Is anyone ready? These questions have re-entered my brain again as I've scrolled the news in early July 2021. In late May and early June, there were a rash of reports about Republican efforts to restrict voting rights and halt Democrats' expansion efforts. There was lots of warranted hand-wringing about the ways the Republican state legislatures are poised to consolidate power at the local level that could threaten the legitimacy of future presidential elections. Congress was unable to agree to even investigate January 6th, prompting the New Yorker to run the headline, American democracy isn't dead yet, but it's getting there. The overwhelming message of these pieces was that America was running out of time on its claim of having even a remotely functioning political system. Even more worrying was the tone, which seemed to suggest, it might not feel bad right now, but it's far worse than you think. My current level of concern is exploring countries to move to after 2024, one political scientist told Vox in late May. Cool. Cool. My personal doom indicator was a Reuters-Ipsos poll from May, which found that 53% of Republicans believe Trump is the true president. There are so many dire elements in the forecast for our political future. 
It seems like a truly formidable challenge for a country to overcome. Which is why one piece of reporting from June felt like a true gut punch. In the Times, Ben Smith wrote a media column about Fox News' Tucker Carlson, who remains a prolific source for political reporters in Washington, D.C. Mr. Carlson's comfortable place inside Washington media, many of the reporters who cover him say, has taken the edge off some of the coverage. It has also served as a kind of insurance policy, they say, protecting him from the marginalization that ended the Fox career of his predecessor, Glenn Beck, Smith wrote. If you open yourself up as a resource to mainstream media reporters, you don't even have to ask them to go soft on you, a journalist told Smith in the piece. I've reported on the far right. I understand that the reporting process frequently brings you into contact with loathsome individuals and that at times these people can be quite helpful because cynical political grifters love to turn on each other and gossip and vent just like everyone else. I've broken some stories, stories I'm proud of, off tips from true cretins. So take my pearl clutching with whatever grains of salt you wish. Still, Smith's column haunted me. You can argue Carlson is who he has always been, or that his Trump-era project of barely laundering white nationalist talking points into mainstream political discourse is disingenuous, pandering to viewers for whom he has utter contempt. I don't care. What I do care about is a political press that has a seemingly neutral or symbiotic relationship with a guy who beams white nationalist rhetoric into three million homes a night. It's worth noting that some of those same articles I read back in the fall, warning of democratic backsliding, single out Carlson as one of the animators of a dark grievance culture that threatens our social political fabric. The strongest factors are racial animosity, fear of becoming a white minority and the growth of white identity, Virginia Gray, a political scientist at the University of North Carolina, told The Times' Tom Edsel, singling out a Carlson monologue from April. It's hard for me to square the Carlson source coziness with the host's increasingly dangerous replacement theory and anti-vax rhetoric. The disconnect between the threat Carlson poses and the political media's shrugging proximity to him fills me with a deep dread for my industry and a very real concern that it will not be able to rise to the challenge of our moment. A shaky democratic foundation, increasingly fewer points of shared reality, a climate emergency, to name a few. I'm not trying to dog reporters working in a shitty, gutted media ecosystem that mostly runs off algorithmic attention and online advertising that most people hate. There is no shortage of vital journalism going on. But structurally, there are still glaring problems with some traditional, outdated journalistic norms and practices, management that still struggles to understand complex internet dynamics, a commitment to journalistic impartiality that does not work in an era where one political party has largely abandoned democracy and, in some cases, reality. Over the last half decade, I watched political journalists and editors tie themselves in knots arguing over whether to call Trump a racist or whether the Republican Party was really becoming anti-democratic or whether Trump's election denial was a coup. In each instance, there's a side arguing that the other needs to calm down, that things are not as bad as they appear. I used to think these people had a lack of imagination. Now, I see it as a strong normalcy bias. 
Writer Jonathan Katz calls this an unthinkability that pervades conversations about so many things in our moment. Basically, we humans are good at repressing terrifying realities that feel unthinkable and steering them back into more acceptable bounds of conversation. Climate coverage offers the clearest picture of this unthinkability dynamic. In a clip from June 7th, CBS meteorologist Jeff Baradelli describes a heat wave stifling the East Coast and the exceptional levels of drought in the West. His tone is urgent, and the maps he's gesturing to on the screen are alarming. He doesn't mince words. This is a climate emergency, he tells one of the morning show anchors. It's the kind of grim statement that you might imagine would evoke a bit of stunned silence. Instead, the anchor smiles broadly and shakes his head in faux disbelief. It's very hot. I feel parched just talking about it, he says, in perfect, playful news cadence. Baradelli and the others on set offer up a classic morning show chuckle. Isn't that something else? Banter. On to the next segment. This is a particularly egregious example of a conventional form of media. In this case, the lighthearted morning show segment that is woefully inadequate for the subject matter. The existential heating of the planet that will render large swaths of it hostile to human life in the near future. In her excellent newsletter, Heated, Emily Atkin has written about the systemic failure of the media to inform readers, viewers, as to why it is so goddamn hot this summer. She cites the work of Colorado journalist Chase Woodruff, who surveyed recent reporting on the state's recent heat wave and found that out of 149 local news stories written about the unprecedented hot temperatures, only six of those stories mentioned climate change. The others, Atkin noted, covered it as if it were an act of God. This behavior isn't new. Back in 2018, Atkin wrote a story on the media's failure to connect the dots on climate change. NPR's science editor told her that, you don't just want to be throwing around, this is due to climate change. That is due to climate change. The editor required reporters to speak to a climate scientist before being allowed to attribute extreme temperatures to climate change. It's an instance, Atkin argues, of overabundance of journalistic caution, primarily attributable to fear. Fear of backlash from denialists, politicians, or other journalists. Maybe even fear of being right. In my mind, there's an incredibly important distinction between embracing complexity and uncertainty in the world and what those Colorado publications, following the lead of so many others, did by not mentioning climate change. Because, well, weather is complex, and we don't want to get yelled at, so who's to say? The problem isn't legitimate nuance. It's when decision-makers in the media space use the existence of uncertainty as an excuse not to say what needs to be said. Sometimes, though, mistakes aren't nefarious. A missed or botched narrative is caused by a little bit of everything. A lot of the retroactive criticism around coronavirus coverage pre-March 2020 was that big media outlets downplayed pandemic fears because they relied heavily on credible expert sources who, themselves, were inclined not to be alarmists. Some in the media were doing their job just as intended, and unwittingly provided false comfort. Others were providing false comfort because they didn't want to be outliers. And another group mostly ignored the threat, 
because platform or other media incentives directed their focus away from an unknown respiratory illness in China. These scenarios are the product of living with and reporting on hyperobjects. The big picture. We're losing our grip on what's real. Our political system is fraying and unsustainable. The planet is burning. It's pretty clear and obvious. But many of the particulars, is that specific hurricane climate change? Is this bill, piece of misinformation, person, a threat to the democracy? Become skirmishes in the culture war. I don't particularly know what to do about any of this. One problem when facing down a hyper-object-sized crisis is that it overwhelms. In a recent piece, Sarah Miller articulated what it feels like to stare down existential dread on the subject of climate change. She argues that, after a certain point, traditional methods, like writing, feel futile. Let's give the article the absolute biggest benefit of the doubt and imagine that people read it and said, Wow, this is exactly how I feel. Thanks for putting it into words. What then? What would happen then? Would people be more aware about climate change? It's 109 degrees in Portland right now. It's been over 130 degrees in Baghdad several times. What kind of awareness quotient are we looking for? What more about climate change does anyone need to know? What else is there to say? Miller's questions asked us to consider and reconsider what our roles are right now. Yes, we have our jobs in the way we've been trained or conditioned or rewarded to do them, and that's all very fine and good. But what about now? Does that training hold up in remarkable existential feeling moments like the one we are in? Are these jobs, the way we've been taught to do them, important now? How do we prepare people for the uncertain, grim contours of the future? Can we do that? I think these are questions journalists have to be asking ourselves at every moment right now. But not just journalists. Hyper-object-sized problems impact everyone. That's why they're hyper-objects. And I don't think any of us are ready. The pandemic showed us how difficult it is, at a societal level, to grasp complex ideas like, say, exponential growth. And there are examples everywhere of our human inability to think long-term or pay big costs up front to avoid catastrophe later. But not being ready isn't quite the same as being doomed to a foregone conclusion. There's the way we've done things and the way we need to do things now. How do we make up the difference between these two notions? We must be probabilistic in our predictions and understanding when they fall short. We all need to learn to work and think on different levels, holding steadfastly to what is not up for debate and not dividing ourselves needlessly over what is. As good as that might sound, I feel foolish writing it. I'm not all that certain any human being can hold such conflicting notions in their head all the time. But that doesn't mean it isn't worth trying. Living with hyper-objects is hard. I don't think we're ready for any of what is to come. I feel alarmist saying this. But it also feels incredibly obvious. That was We Are Not Ready by Charlie Warzel for Galaxy Brain on July the 8th, 2021. Read by Chris Brinkley for Curio.